In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. One of the things I really love about the gospel is it challenges us to stop accepting lesser forms of ourselves. One of the things I dislike about world culture (laughs) is that it makes you feel angst about yourself and that you're never good enough. And so you need the next self-help book or perfect diet to get there. The gospel calls us to be more than we are because it calls us to be who we're supposed to be. The world tries to tell us different quacks and quirks to make us better because really it's just trying to sell us something. Our struggle as fallen beings is that we plateau. Uh, there's, there's just this thing people that study things have said that you will grow up to a point like say typing you know i remember in middle school we learned typing i wish they taught kids the still the still but um instead of pecking um learned how to type i don't remember i think it's 40 words a minute which is decent for that age um i I haven't really improved though and that's the thing You, you start learning something and you see this dramatic growth curve and then you hit this point where you kind of plateaued you've kind of hit the most you're going to learn and most people reach those plateaus and they stay there so uh, whether it be a sport or an instrument or any other skill we accelerate then we hit this point and we just kind of settle there we only only those who get past that plateau are those who put in the extra work or the extra effort and then you actually get to the next level but few people are willing to go that extra level and i feel that that's actually very true of us spiritually we see when we get saved we're amazed to see that our sin nature is curbed because christ is now in us and he's changing our desires and we see growth and we see fruit and we see this change in ourselves like whoa i don't think the way i used to and and all of these things are exciting but then we sort of hit the plateau and we cruise through the rest of our Christian life waiting for God to just break in and change something or thinking that uh, getting involved in politics will bring that extra spark or maybe moving to another state will bring that extra spark or maybe switching churches will bring that extra spark or maybe um, the next latest uh, Christian bestseller will bring that spark or we, we start seeking in so many different places to find it, not realizing that actually... The things we were doing at the beginning are perfectly fine. It's just that we stopped putting in the work. He saved us by grace, and we were eager to meet that grace with all kinds of responsiveness. But then we just said, all right, cool, I did it. And we forget that there's more, that Christ is actually saving us from our sins, not just because our sins are taking us to hell, he's saving us from our sins because our sins are corrupting the image he made us to be. He wants to rescue us from our sins so that we can unhindered, in an unhindered way, grow into the people he's made us to be. But we start growing and then we just plateau. I'm saying this because I don't ever hear people calling us to do this one thing I see Christ inviting us to do in Matthew chapter 4. 
uh, the, the rest of the Bible, shockingly, this is why I said the gospel's good for us because it challenges us. It shockingly tells us that there are things that ought to be happening in our Christian lives that frankly we don't take very seriously or don't care about or actually haven't heard before. Let me give you an example. This is the example for the night. Romans 16 verse 20. Romans 1620, I read this to someone who was very well versed in the scriptures and they questioned if that was an accurate quote. I said, go look it up. Romans 1620, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul is talking to the Roman church. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is the church's mission is to crush the devil. I think sometimes we just, I'm saved by grace. I know I've got these issues and these vices. We'll call them passions or sins or the works of the devil, just vices. Um, and I'm, I'm trying, but God's got me. He's great. He's gracious. That's the 99th percentile of Christian attitude towards sin. Yet the Bible's telling us that we are part of God's answer in Genesis 3 when we fall and that the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman, the New Testament tells us that Christ does that and we do that with him. We are part of the answer to solving the devil problem. We crush him when we start resisting him. We crush him when we stop just going along with the ways of the world or just giving up and saying, I am who I am by grace and I can't fix this. We crush him when we resist him. We are being called, in other words, in Matthew 4, to go above the plateau. It's time to kick it into another gear. So, um, we must banish from our thoughts. This is where we get stuck. The plateau comes in because we exercise what someone else, I thought, very um, convictingly called the lowest common denominator. We allow the lowest common denominator to rule our lives. That sounds like this. Well, I mean, I'm not as bad as these people. So I'm doing, I'm doing it right. In other words, we start comparing ourselves to others, whether it be worldlings or other Christians who just aren't quite as sanctified as I am. I'm feeling pretty smug. I'm at a pretty good place. Or it also sounds like this. Pastor Brandon is really big on encouraging us to pray and fast. But Church of the Woods doesn't do that. Or Calvary Lake Arrow doesn't do that. I, I'm just assuming, okay? I don't actually know what they say. Um, the lowest common, the common denominator says, but other Christians don't do that, so we don't have to be as determined as Pastor Brandon's inviting us to be. Or... Our worship music, not pointing any fingers at anyone, uh, doesn't have to be as solid because other people do a worse job, right? It's, it's the lowest common denominator looks around and says, well, I'm doing better than most people, so I'm good. And that's how we plateau. That's not what the gospel calls us to. It says that you keep growing because in Christ, in us, and us in Christ, there is no limit to what he's going to make us. 
Um, okay, so that introduction went a little longer than I meant. But um, in Matthew 4, let's read. And we'll see Christ enter the arena. And Christ is going to do all kinds of works in us if we're willing to enter this battleground with him. So you may recall he got baptized uh, in, in Matthew 3. And the first thing he does is he doesn't go and storm the gates of Jerusalem and say, the kingdom's here. He goes in deeper into the wilderness. He does storm the gates of a kingdom. It is the devil's kingdom. So in Matthew 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He's he's quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And that's actually very important, which we'll get to in a bit. He, God, will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus counters with Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. In him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth, He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So this is the Sea Galilee region, the upper northern area of Israel. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And when he went throughout all Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. The Decapolis was an area of Galilee, which was Gentile. And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Wow. What a scene. He goes into Galilee, into Capernaum, and there fulfills Isaiah's prophecy that he will bring light to those that are in darkness. Something's changed. People are trapped in this darkness and now light is breaking in upon them. And then he begins to preach. He makes the proclamation, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's, he's, this is what John the Baptist said. He's saying the same thing, but he doesn't say it until he's come out of the wilderness. Then he calls disciples to follow him, but he doesn't call them to follow him. He doesn't recruit them until he has come out of the wilderness and proclaimed the kingdom is now here. Then we see in verse 23 and to the end of the chapter, he begins doing all these miracles, serving people, healing people. There are great crowds coming to him. His service to the people does not begin until he had come out of the wilderness. So what happens in the wilderness? Something that makes all of that possible. Jesus does not rush out of the baptismal waters, curing the world. He does not rush out of the waters, gaining a following. He does not rush out of the waters, preaching his first sermon. He rushes out of the waters into the arena of the wilderness. And there is a great contest between the Son of God and the devil. And it is only when he comes out of this wilderness victorious over the devil that he proclaims the kingdom is here, that he is able to now gain followers who will do what he has done in trampling the devil. And it's only then when he is able to begin his service to others, his healing of others. There's no purpose, in other words, for him to heal until the devil has been conquered. And when he is his first conquering, there's going to be several crushings of the devil. And now that the devil has been shown to be impotent to him, he can now then go and release people from his grasp. He can go and undo what the devil and his sin have done, healing bodies and releasing them from bondages and from sins and from ailments and illnesses and releasing demons from them. And then people can now follow because his service is not Him just trying to make people feel better about themselves. His service is actually a releasing of demonic work because he has power over the devil. Matthew is also showing us that Christ goes into this arena, not just on our behalf so that we can applaud him from our seats, but so that we can follow him into it and through it. So, Christ in Matthew 4 is like a great teacher. We are all his recruitments. We are all advancing his kingdom against not just the world per se, but against Satan's kingdom, which often is manifested in the world. And he's recruiting us to be his special forces team. We are not just anybody's. 
we, yes, we were like nobodies, like these disciples he calls, but he calls us to become that elite force in the world, which is relieving the sufferings of the world from the bondage and tyranny of the devil. But we must train with him. We therefore go into the arena with him because the arena is not just a place we go to every now and then. The arena is life. This is where life is and everything else is going to come out of our battle and victory in the arena. I think I said this a couple weeks ago, but it's worth repeating again. We often think that spiritual warfare is a moment in life or it's something that happens to us. I'm driving up the mountain, ready to go to church and lead the congregation and boom, a flat tire. It's spiritual warfare. (laughs) That's superficial spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare doesn't begin or end. When you were born, you entered it. You were simply a a subject to the devil. And then Christ raids the kingdom of the devil, frees you, and now you are hated by him. You always were. But now the war continues. We are always in spiritual warfare. My every act is a decision to serve Christ our king or the pretend king the devil. And all of my works are participating in one of their works. I'm part- I, we don't originate anything. We're either partnering with the devil or partnering with Christ. And so Christ, in training us, doesn't just say, All right, my people, let's sin less. Let's conquer the devil. Let's get rid of the passions. Uh, this is what you're going to do. One, two, three. Now go. This is, this is the way we're often led to do things. But rather, he is an excellent teacher in that he, this is John Chrysostom pointed this out, that he goes into the arena before us to show us how this is done. The way that John Chrysostom used the illustration of a good wrestling teacher doesn't just tell his students how to wrestle. He goes into the arena against a foe and shows them how the wrestling tactics work. This is what he's doing. He's going ahead of us and showing us this is how we battle the devil. This is how we overcome his tactics. And brothers and sisters, it's really not that sophisticated when we see Christ lay it bare. We just need eyes to see. So the tactics the devil uses are three, and they're all right here. Uh, These are the three famous ones that we know from 1 John chapter 2. Um, he's first John two verse 16 says this for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And he goes on and says, whoever loves the things of the world does not love, does not have the love of the father in him. What is John saying there? The lust, uh, the desires of the flesh is traditionally uh, referring to gluttony. The desires of the eyes is vainglory. It's you're desiring people's eyes on you. Mm-hmm. And the pride of life, uh, the Greek is translated to refer to stuff. The pride of life is the things that I have. In fact, other translations full on just translate it as the arrogance produced by material possessions. Mm-hmm. So it's greed. John warns us about against gluttony, feeding the flesh. He warns us against vainglory, wanting eyes on us. And he warns us against the pride of collecting possessions, greed. Gluttony, vainglory, and greed. 
These are what John warns us against. These are what Satan throws at Jesus here. Turn these stones into bread because you're hungry. Gluttony. Throw yourself off the temple so that everyone sees God rescue you. Vainglory. And look at all the things of the world. The kingdoms of the world are yours. Greed. These, it, it's amazing when you actually read some of the old dead guys um, who who remember things that we forget. Um, it's a clue. What did you say? Okay. Uh, the old dead guys, uh, they all say that the devil has three generals in his battalion against us. And unanimously, they cite the same three. I, I want to give you guys a few examples and just the diversity of who's saying this. Uh, John Chrysostom, um, who has, he's, he preached through Matthew to his congregation. So he's very, he's going to be quoted a lot as we go through Matthew. Cause that's like our oldest sermons, by the way, in Matthew that we have recorded is Chrysostom sermons in Matthew. So it's pretty rad. Uh, he says, um, to me, I don't remember where he said this, but this is the same guy. He says, to me, it seems that in the mentioning of the chief of the temptations, he had spoken of all as though the rest too were inclined in these. Oh, this was his sermon on this. Yeah, on this passage. That's right. For the things that from the substance of innumerable evils are these. Okay. He said that really weird. He's saying all evils come from these three things and he names them. Um... To be a slave to the belly, gluttony, to do anything for vain glory, and to be in subjection to the madness of riches, greed. So he was saying, the devil here is throwing his three best tactics at Christ, and all the rest of the evils come from these. They're easy to remember because they're the three G's. Gluttony, greed, and vain glory. So... Theodorius, the great ascetic, he's in the ninth century, so he's quite a bit later. Um, he says, among the demons opposing us, there are three groups that fight in the front line. Those entrusted with the appetites of gluttony, those that suggest greediness, or I'm sorry, those that suggest greedy thoughts, and those that incite us to vainglory. All the other demons follow behind and in their turn attack those already wounded by the first three groups. So these first three passions, sins, come and wound us, and then the rest get in through these wounds. Uh, Maximus the Confessor, 6th and 7th century, says, Guard yourself against the mother of the vices, self-love, which is mindless love for the body. It gives birth with... with, uh, It gives birth to the first three and most general of the impassioned thoughts. I mean those of... Gluttony, greed, and vainglory, which take as their pretext some so-called need of the body. All further vices are generated by these. And then, uh, last one from St. John of the Ladder, or John of Sinai, another one of our, because he's so quotable, and I've read his book, so. Uh, he says, the one who has devoutedly killed the three passions of gluttony, greed, and vainglory within him, has put to death all the others. But the one who has been neglectful about the first three will not overcome any of the other passions. So, uh, and I, I limited it, right? I didn't want to just read tech, uh, quote after quote to you guys. I just pulled some variety and show you guys, like, this is historically, these are the three 
The devil throws these at Christ because these are the three he throws at us continually. The rest of the sins are following these three. Guard yourselves against gluttony, vainglory, and greed. So here's what Christ does. He goes into the arena and shows us how to wrestle these. So with gluttony, the tempter came to him in verse 3 and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. There is nothing wrong with Jesus eating bread right then. There would have been no sin in eating. The devil's not tempting Jesus to sin because he's not allowed to eat right now. That's not at all what's going on. The devil is tempting Jesus to do something at his bidding. Now, we need to understand something. No matter how innocent something seems, if it's the devil who bids us to do it, it is not obedience to God. Well, we must therefore be wary of why we're doing the things that we do. God, uh, we, can, we can feel called to do a good deed, but sometimes the devil can make you want to do things to feel smug about yourself. We must always be discerning about who we are obeying when we do things. Um, so what he gives us instead is a passage from Deuteronomy 8. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because this is what he's proposing to us is obedience. Obedience is our counterattack to gluttony. The devil would love to just let us give in to all of our cravings. But Jesus says, uh, Jesus says that obedience is more important than even what seems to be a necessity. The devil wants us to look at life as comfort, as indulge in this or that. And it's not necessarily just food. It's in various things. We can get totally uh, indulgent on media and news or politics or um, uh, just pure knowledge of the Bible. Like there's, there's all kinds of things that we could get indulgent about, obsessed about. And the devil wants us to fill ourselves with things that are not of the spirit because a body full of bread is a soul ready for bed. You know that to be true when you eat a lot. You just don't want to do anything. This is a physical representation of what happens to the soul as well. If we overload and overexpend our desires on things that don't actually build up the soul, then the soul is going to be fatigued from its constant chasing or even being dispersed among other things. And this is what the devil wants is to simply rock the Christians into, you're fine. No, it's fine. Don't you feel so content and complacent and just keep on cruising. We must be on guard for gluttony. And what Christ says is that obedience is the way that we address this. When Christ asks us to get up and pray, even though it's the middle of the night, guess what we should do? But it's not comfortable. I know. We got to teach the body not to seek comfort. When we see somebody that needs some help and it's just not convenient, maybe if you feel the urging to go and help that extra shovel, uh, maybe that's what we need to do. Um, you really don't want to chop carrots, but maybe that's what you need to do because someone is in the kitchen making food. Um, 
obedience is what he's calling us to. Uh, now, in verse, or in the next one, the second test, in verse 5, uh, having Jesus jump off the pinnacle, the temple, so he's rescued. Obviously, the temptation here is that all of these people would say, wow, look at him, let's follow him. This is vainglory. This is bringing attention to yourself. And the reason the devil wants to tempt us with vainglory is because the more attention that is put on us, the less detection we have of him. Now, understand that. The more that people notice the church or notice the Christians and what they're doing and applaud all the good things they're doing, then we begin to notice, wow, what people see about us. And we want to keep the eye contact on us or people thinking well of the church or applauding us. And as soon as our eyes shift that way, we've lost the battle. Our battle is not against getting people to like us. It's against the devil. And he will often give us all kinds of means to have attention because he doesn't want attention on him. He wants to sneak in the back door and get us. What Christ is pro- uh, proposing to us here in uh, this verse is the radical counterattack of patience. The devil wants us so badly to get a lot of attention. Now, do the things that are flashy and attractive. And Christ has to go the way of the gospel. Patience. Now's not the time to jump off and get everyone applauding. Instead, we will overcome the devil little by little. As we faithfully obey Christ, as we gather in worship, as we pray, as we work on not letting the sins overcome us and rooting out the things that are not of Christ from us, these are the little things. They, they, they don't show up. They, there's a saying in baseball that it doesn't show up in the box score. Some players do little things that don't give you a stat that make you look better. It's things that just happen to move the game forward in a good way, but gets no credit. Like a sacrifice bunt, for example. Um, these are the things that don't show up in the box score. People don't look at John. No one has ever looked at John and said, he, he prayed this morning. John, teach us your ways. You prayed this morning. This is just, the church has gotten to a point where there's a whole hum about things that Christ is asking us to do. But if John was to launch a nonprofit and immediately raise a million dollars for it, oh my goodness, the papers would be interviewing John and all kinds of attention would be coming toward him. Now look, Christ is not against those efforts, but notice that he does not go to the crowds and heal them until he has overcome the need for vainglory in his own heart. He has ruthlessly rooted out and wrestled the devil and his works first. The battle against the devil before saving the world. Because we will just fall right into other sins if that's the case. Um... So obedience in God's word, patience in waiting for the right times to let God exalt us. And then um, third, we see the greed when he shows them the kingdoms of the world. Jesus responds with a counterattack. No, service is the answer here. Service counters greed. Uh, because service and wor- by service, we mean he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Worship is service and service is worship. So there's coming together to worship God. And the reason why the traditional phrase of church gatherings is service is because we're gathering to serve our Lord. He's given us so much and we gather to receive that and then we give it back to him as an offering. This is our service to him. But then service is also worship because when we go out of the walls of a church and serve people, this is also an act of worship. 
And this is, this counters greed because if we don't recognize by gathering together what it is that God is giving to us, doing among us, and pouring out for us, and if we don't receive that and reciprocate that back to him, then we will never understand all of the riches he's already given us and what we have to give to the world. Instead, we're going to be looking for power grabs and opportunities to just manipulate and make things happen. We have so much to give, not so much to take. So he counters with service and worship. So obedience, patience, and service are our counterattacks to the devil's gluttony, vainglory, and greed. Um, so how do we do all those things, though? Well, Jesus deflects, I'm sorry, he defeats the devil in all three of these, not because he has great willpower, And he's not calling us to do the same thing. Just get your act together and do it. He did something for us and now invites us to do it with him. And this is what he did. He submitted his human nature, his human will, to the divine nature and the divine will. Remember that Jesus is one person with two natures. He's 100% God and 100% human. And so what he does on earth is he submits the part where the devil's trying to get the human will to follow him. He submits the human will underneath the divine will. He says yes to the divine will instead of the devil will. And so the human nature in Christ is strengthened by saying yes to the divine will. And he says it perfectly to the three big temptations. He says yes, yes, yes to God. And that healed our nature Because he has our nature attached to him. And he does what Adam didn't do. Adam said yes to these three things. He did what Israel didn't do in the wilderness. They said yes to these three things. And every other human sense has said yes to these three battles. And has fallen to the devil. But he takes the human will. And he submits it to the divine will. And heals it. And strengthens it. So that when we are baptized in Christ. And we have him in us. And we're in him. He actually heals our nature. So it's no longer bent to saying yes to the devil. But now it's actually a and capable of saying yes to the divine. He does this in him so that it's like going back to Chrysostom's analogy of the wrestler. It's not just Christ entering into the arena and showing us how to wrestle the devil. It's also him then saying, come have a try. We step into the arena and we find that he comes into us and is wrestling through us. I can wrestle anyone if he's in me. I can watch all the baseball footage I want, but I will never, ever be able to be Shohei Otani, being able to be one of the best pitchers in the game and best hitters in the game at the same time. I will never be able to do that no matter how hard I work because I'm not Shohei Otani. But if his, if he himself was to come inside of me, whew, that'd be kind of fun. Uh, how hard I could throw and how far I could hit be phenomenal. Um, That's how that could happen, right? This is what we have in Christ. He's not just asking us to mimic. He's asking us to get into the arena and he will work in us. He will. He who has conquered will come in and give us the strength to conquer. The choice is ours to say yes. The choice is ours to submit our will to him and then he will do the rest because he's already done that. So we're asked simply to resist the devil. 
Um, here's how John of Damascus put it so beautifully. Because this, this is, brothers and sisters, we're looking at Christ accomplishing salvation right here against the devil. And of course, the cross and the resurrection and more to come. But this is part of the first stages is taking on our nature, becoming a human, taking on our nature, and now wrestling the devil with it. And John of Damascus said, he, be- I, I love the old fashioned wording on some things. So catch his like little catchy logic. He became man in order that that which was overcome might overcome. He became man in order that that which was overcome, we were like with Adam was once abiding in God, but then he was overcome by sin. So Christ became man so that that which was overcome, our will and our nature able to fellowship with God, this was overcome by sin. He says he became man so that that which was overcome might be overcome. So him becoming man and then wrestling the devil and overcoming him and pinning him and making him cry uncle, (laughs) um, he has made us now able to overcome what had overcome us. So sin no longer, Romans 6, it no longer has dominion over us because he took our nature and overcame it. And so now if we are willing to simply resist the devil and submit ourselves to God, this is James chapter 4 verse 7. He says, resist the devil, submit yourselves to God. If that, that's, that's what we do. And then you will have victory. And in these little things that the world doesn't see or applaud, these little everyday decisions, you are foot by foot trampling over the devil. He's becoming our carpet as we go to serve and heal the world. But there's no other way until we beat him first. Because then every other work will just be used to just be twisted and brought, bring arrogance and pride and selfishness and gain. <sighs> So how do we resist the devil? Obedience to God resists him every time. Patience, when you'd rather do the quick and easy thing, resists him every time. Service, when it's not the easy thing, resists him every time. These three counterattacks Christ gives us are the ways that we resist him. Um, and when we resist, here's the beautiful thing. Uh, when we resist, verse 11 then the devil left him, and behold, so he exhausted his best armament. And he's saving the, the one for the end, death. There'll be a climatic battle later. But, but he's, he's thrown his three best tactics, gluttony, self, uh, vainglory, and greed. And they didn't work, so the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. When we engage in resistance the hosts of heaven offer their assistance. That's what we see here. This isn't just Jesus is like special, so the angels came and ministered to him. If he was special, he wouldn't need the, I mean, he is special. Don't mishear me. Okay, how do I say this differently? Uh, It's not like the angels came to him because he's the son of God to minister to him. He wouldn't need that as the son of God. The angels come to minister to him because the human nature is strengthened when it resists the devil and submits itself to God. This is why they're coming to him. Because this is what happens to us when we are willing to submit to God and not the devil. We find that there is actual spiritual realm assistance to the people of God. Now, I understand. On one hand, I am not capable of resisting the devil and throwing him down by myself. Never. But what would happen if a church 
in its entirety gave themselves over as a people who lived to resist him. That momentum would be unstoppable. And the angels and hosts of heaven would be behind a church like that. The spiritual warfare would be strengthened. The demons wouldn't stand a chance. They would flee and scream before such an army because these are those who are becoming Christ's elite. They will not tolerate giving in to what the world does. What would happen if we pursued purity? If we did that in unity, what would happen? victory you can't imagine. Why don't we see the gifts of the Spirit working actively in the church today? I mean, frankly, I, I you have people, you have the scholars go back, step, step back and they do this. Well, that's because of cessationism. God has decided to stop using the gifts. They were just for starting the church. And then others go, oh, no, 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 no. The, the gifts are totally active and and they really make a lot of, uh, they kind of work up a lot of gifts through emotionalism and just manipulation. Mm. Um, so we've got these two dramatic sides and, and the scholars say, Oh no, no, the gifts are possible today. Yes. We don't know why we don't see them, but they're possible. But what if it's because we aren't pure of heart? We have too much sin that's blocking the special flow of the spirit we see in the early church. Cause we stop, we stop battling the devil. And what if it's because we aren't working at that in unity? It's because we have these isolated people who think, I'm John Wayne, I'm going to take out, down all the bad guys by myself. It's when a group of people gather and seek the same mission together, that's unity. It's when we are pressing and marching forward as one army, that's unity. Unity is not always sharing our most intimate, darkest selves with each other. That can be intimidating and hard. And now you can get to that kind of unity with people. But unity begins when we have the same direction and we're going for the same goal. And if the church seeks purity, resisting the devil, and growing up into Christ and grow, overcoming that plateau, if they do this together, that is an unstoppable force. And we will see the works of the Spirit multiplying in the church. That's my theory. Take it or leave it. Um, I, uh, uh, here's what Christ said. This will be later, Matthew. In Matthew 16, verse 18, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That does not mean that the church will forever stand because hell will never be able to beat it down. That's not what that means. That's how I read that for years. Until someone simply pointed out the obvious fact that gates don't march in advance. <laughs> oh, duh. <laughs> what that verse means is that the church will march against hell. And its gates will not prevail. They will collapse. This is going back to Paul. You will trample the devil beneath your feet. That is really amazing. Are we seeing that? Yes, in small increments. But can we be seeing that more? Mm -hmm. I think if Christians would wrestle in the arena with Christ over the devil, we will actually see some advancement of the kingdom. And by the advancement of the kingdom, I don't mean they're bringing heaven here and all whatever. I'm not, I mean, we will see the kingdom of the devil getting squashed and the strongholds and the garrisons, like anthills being squashed 
stepped on and the demons scrambling because no, the Christians are actually taking their job seriously. It would be amazing. And then we would see the rest of chapter four perhaps happening. Disciples being called and miracles happening. People being healed and the world being restored. So I want to finish with this concept of heaven's help. Um, the angels coming to minister because the devil actually suggested this when he cited Psalm 91. He remember he told Jesus, look, if you jump down, he'll command his angels and in on their hands, they will bear you up so you won't crush your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91 verses 11 through 12. Have you ever looked at the next verse of that Psalm? I'm sure the devil did. And that's why he stopped quoting it right there. Here's what Psalm 91 verse 13 goes on to say. And you will tread on the lion and the viper. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. That is the devil being destroyed. Why doesn't he cite this part? Because what the psalm is praying when you pray it in its entirety is that God will come to support us to the aim of being delivered from the evil one. Not, he will send his angels to make us look marvelous. That is not what the psalm is saying. But he will send his angels to strengthen his people to trample the lion and the serpent. That is why the angels come and minister to Jesus. And that's what will happen to the church if it will choose to trample, to defeat the devil, to take up our call in the spiritual battle and say, spiritual warfare is not just personal angst that I have, but it's actually a kingdom versus kingdom movement. And Christ is like Uncle Sam saying, I want you for the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> and he's also like the more current campaign, be all you can be. Is that the army? Or it was one of their slogans. Be all you can be, Christian, because in Christ we have so much more than we are. We have so much more than we are. So I, I hope I'm not beating us up over the head and saying we're all worthless. Um, I hope instead we're hearing that Christ wants us to have an exciting life. And we don't have to search all those memes that we said way earlier uh, to make our Christian life more exciting. It's all here. Let's take our own sins seriously. Then we take the church's corporate sins seriously. And then we go into society. Like We just don't allow the devil to have a foothold. This is how it starts. And so, happy Lent, everyone. <laughs> Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages.